And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It's Monday, April 10th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. Eno, back from vacation. Eno, how was your trip? It was great. Uh, the weather in New York was weird. Uh, there were days that we had that were 70 and sunny, and also days where the high was like 45. So uh, that took some navigating. But we checked out the New York Metropolitan Museum. We checked out of art. We checked out the uh, Natural History Museum. We went to the Color Factory. We went to uh, the top of the Empire State Building. Uh, we went to two uh, Magic the Gathering comics, comic book stores. <laughs> uh, we went to the park like three times. Um, and uh, we had generally a good time. I ate something like seven sandwiches and uh, tried out something like 15 beer bars. So It's really good for a week. <laughs> yeah, 10 days well, like 10 days yeah so yeah definitely average more than a beer bar per day so i think i have uh enough for a piece in there somewhere yeah that's just research that's it's just part of the job someone's got to go out there and do it so yeah glad glad to have you back and uh, glad you had a good time in new york and that sounds like the midwest sort of weather that i have been hiding from for the last two years just like oh yeah you get these really nice days unexpectedly and then it goes back to being terrible again just lovely how that happens Lots to talk about on this episode. We're going to start today with the O'Neill Cruz injury. Unfortunately, the Pirates' fast start to the season kind of has a cloud hanging over it now. And I just saw a timetable pop up a little while ago. It sounds like he's going to miss 10 to 12 weeks after having surgery on the ankle. It was a fractured, suffered from sliding into home plate. Just an awkward collision. I, I didn't really think it was a like a dirty play. It was just he slid a little late and just kind of folded up pretty bad. I was wondering what the White Sox idea was because i saw that that happening in real time and I'm like, what are the white Sox mad about but i guess sebi savala said after the game that he thought the slide was late yeah it looked like it was late but it, it didn't look like it was late for the sake of being malicious it just looked like late awkward yeah i thought he was running hard so he wanted to get there and he thought the play would be close and i don't know I also just wonder uh, the gray area about like blocking the lane or not. Yeah, uh, in that play, I know the throw brought him in there, and I don't think it was malicious, but like, uh, wasn't he in his lane? I don't know. It looked like he was, but it also to me looked like if Cruz had just been running on the outer part of the baseline, he would have been okay. Like he would have had a path where he would have been less likely to collide the way he did. So. Definitely more hitters uh, with the with the home plate and with the rules the way they are should do that. Like, um, I mean, definitely everyone should look as smooth as Trey Turner. But like, you know how like Trey Turner does that, like slide past the the bag and touch it. You know that sort of takes you out of a lot of the traffic around home plate. And I think you know a lot like most times it's like that's like the good solution. But yeah, really unfortunate because O'Neill Cruz did seem to be improving some of his contact rate problems and um had been having a a decent uh beginning of the season that could let could have led uh to kind of the the breakout that everyone was calling for um you know especially given how great his discipline has been but uh yeah i think it's going to be hard for him to um really surpass you know what? The, what do you think the over under is on plate appearances for the year? He's missing three months three off months. for sure. So, I mean, yeah, probably two, 
250 at most would be the final tally, maybe 300 if, if everything goes really well and he comes back and they just let him play nearly every day, which would be the plan, so long as he doesn't need like, some maintenance days off here and there. Yeah, somewhere between 250 and 300 now is the range. I know that there's people out there, uh, even uh, long-term friends of mine, that are texting me about uh, some sort of possibility of like maybe trading O'Neill Cruz for a non-keeper, you know, in sort of keeper situations. Mm. You know, the one I'm listening to is like, oh, try trade O'Neill Cruz for a year of Francisco Lindor, where I would have Cruz for three. And I think that's actually the most difficult part, especially given that we saw a real advancement. I know it's only 40 plate appearances, but a real advancement in his swing rates and his aggression at the plate. And that's like that's like the key that unlocks everything. I don't think he can be like a 18% walk rate, 20% strikeout rate over his whole career. But if he can be a 11 or 12% walk rate and a 22 to 25% strikeout rate guy, this is a superstar. Right? Mhm. Because he does everything else really well. So I, I my tendency is to say, man, 3 years of a superstar I know Lindor is great. It'd be one year. Maybe you could win with him. My tendency is to err towards, you know, caution and being like, I'm going to keep O'Neill Cruz here. This still looks like a potential star. and It's an unfortunate timing, but I, I, I would, I'd want to keep him yeah, short term, you know, only league uh, options or maybe like Nick Ahmed and stealing some bases and playing a little bit. <laughs> Uh, oh, you know, brutal. you get to the deeper leagues. You could actually use Rodolfo Castro in a sort of 15 team league as uh, as a as a replacement because I do think Rodolfo that's what happened in the game. Rodolfo went there. Jiwon Bay came into the game and could have gone to short, but they put Castro at short. So I'm kind of thinking Castro is the shortstop. Jiwon Bay and Tukapita Marcano are going to play more going forward. Those are some uh, solutions there. I don't. I don't know. What do you have any sort of waiver wire options in front of you for twelve and fifteen team leagues? Yeah, I'd, I was looking for a middle infielder in a fifteen team last night. So the backing up a little bit, I, I'm a little worried about Anthony Volpe's slow start if you're relying on him. So I was trying to do a little bit of uh, preparation to have an, a new shortstop at the ready in case he were to get sent down in the next week or two. If he continues to struggle, mm. I could see them making a quick decision to send him down and play IKF or, or somebody else in that spot for a little while. And in 15s, it's not surprising. We talked about it, I think, during draft season. Shortstop does actually thin out at the bottom of the pool, if only because most teams are playing a star there. And if they're not playing a star there, they're looking for someone. And if they're looking for someone, they're not really playing anyone there on an everyday basis that you'd want to have on your team. Most of the players that you're going to find who are shortstop eligible in a 15-team league, if they didn't just pick up that eligibility this year because they move around, they're like a Miguel Rojas type. So the best I could do in a 15-team league yesterday was Brandon Crawford. And I felt like that was actually okay, given the circumstances. Yeah. Like that, that was at least a, a passable sort of replacement. I think you're looking at that sort of level right now in a 15-teamer. In a 12, you may be a bit more fortunate. You know, you may have some guys that actually have a little bit more of a, a baseline that you could accept in the lineup on a consistent basis. Are you going to get one-for-one one production for what you're expecting from O'Neill Cruz from whoever you pick up? Of course not. That's not going to happen. Um, so it, it's it's ugly. I've got a 12 open right now. It's complicated that it's a dynasty um, and it has you know, somewhat deeper benches than most. Uh, so Volpe and Tovar are available at the top, but they're hmm. owned. Um, the best options other than that by owned percentage on Yahoo are John Birdie, mm. Elvis Andrews, and Nick Gordon. Perdomo's there. I think the only guy that I would take over Brandon Crawford or maybe take is Nick Gordon just for the hope that he gets together. <laughs> you know, like... The top end outcomes for Nick Gordon might be better than the top end outcomes for like a 33-year-old, 34-year-old Brandon Crawford. Yeah, you mentioned Perdomo in there. I was just curious. I thought I saw a good line on him so far, and he's played well. He's got a 438, 571, 813. I snaps it at Ahmed to my friend, but uh, maybe maybe Perdomo is the one. You you had said you know before the season started that you know you thought Perdomo 
you know, as a sort of hot takeish, like could could put things together. He is not hitting the ball any harder than usual. No, he's not. He does have a six <laughs> six hundred Babbitt. So. <laughs> yeah, six hundred Babbitt, and he's got a sixteen point seven percent hard hit rate. Yeah, right. So I don't, <laughs> I don't think it's happening right now. I think I still stick with Ahmed, but uh, yeah, that's that's the deep legs. It's a it's a tough place to to take an injury. I'm hoping if you have him in an MI, uh, you know, in a twelve team league. Let's see if it gets any better at second. Um, you know, there's a possibility Miguel Vargas is out there for you. Brandon Drury's available in my league. Uh, that would that would be very happy to 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 pick up Brandon Drury uh, at this point. Josh Rojas is is playing and, and stealing bases. He's on my uh, he's out there for me. So those are some guys that could help. The other name that I guess you have to think about would be Kyle Farmer. He's playing quite a bit for the Twins right now, too. Probably more of a 15-team league sort of player than a 12-team league sort of player. But it's a tough injury for all sorts of reasons. We want to see O'Neill Cruz play, want to see what he can do, taking those steps forward. And it's a very thin position as we try and find middle infield production. The guy that I think could become interesting, who was picked up in a few of my leagues but is still out there in a few, is Edmundo Sosa. Al and I talked about the Phillies situation with Derek Hall going down to an injury, and it looked like Cody Clemens was going to get the first crack at the big side platoon role at first base, but I started looking more at Edmundo Sosa, who already has third base and shortstop eligibility, so he's kind of a nice player for deeper leagues anyway with corner and middle. I started looking at some of the underlying stat cast numbers in recent years. Barrel rate last year got up to 5.5%. It's not high, but it's not terrible, and he runs well. He's one of those guys that he's got a pretty good sprint speed, pretty good max exit velocity. It reminds me a little bit of Tyro Estrada, actually, where it's sort of mm. like, hey, if this guy gets playing time and just sees big league pitching on a more regular basis, there could be a little bit of a skills improvement just from the, the regular playing time. And because he can run, especially, that might actually provide a sneaky amount of value off the wire, given the needs the Phillies have on that depth chart right now. Yeah, I mean... He hits too many ground balls, and he's always had okay max EVs, uh, bordering on, on really good, and and so really it's been about unlocking that power and, and actually lifting the ball some. But even with this kind of a profile, um, you know, he could hit 10, 15 homers and, and steal 10 bags. Yeah, that's not bad for deeper leagues. And the configuration the Phillies used in their lineup on Sunday – they moved Alec Bohm over to first base, played Sosa at third. That, to me, makes more sense than forcing Clemens into the equation. I think Clemens is much more of a bench player. If you had to choose one of those guys to play a lot, I think Sosa makes more sense. Plus, doing that improves your... Uh, uh, he, oh, man, ligament in his th- right, right thumb for Hall, so that's uh, that's got to be at least a month. It's horrible months. timing for a guy that was just getting an actual yes. shot that was probably never really going to happen for him in Philly. It's really bad. Uh, but for the Phillies, uh, the the sort of slightly positive outcome for this is that Sosa at third and Bohm at first is a much better defensive lineup for them. And if Sosa can you know play well enough offensively, um, you know, this could be a better lineup for them now with, I would say, above average defenders at every spot in the infield. That would be something new for the Phillies. Yeah, it's a nice turn in the right direction to see that happening. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's talk about some of the other things that were happening over the weekend from a pickups perspective, because I think this time of year, it's really tough to read too much into performances. We're still talking about three series worth of games. We want things to mean a lot, and they just don't yet for the most part. So I think it's a good time to sort of look at what people are doing in our leagues, assess whether or not these are good processes or bad processes, and hopefully improve our own outlooks with our own rosters by thinking through these problems Uh, One of the biggest uh, pickups of the weekend in 12-team leagues was Tyler McGill. And the Tyler McGill-David Peterson battle to stay in that rotation is 100% on. No Verlanders making progress, getting closer to return. Uh, We saw some three-digit bids on McGill this weekend. And I remember going back to the beginning of last season when he was filling in for Jacob deGrom. There was a lot of excitement then, too, because the stuff was really good. Does he still look a little bit like that guy. I know he had the arm injury last year that cost him significant time. It just, it seems like the hype this time around is lower, but this is a very good situation if Tyler McGill is even 90% as effective as he was at the beginning of last season. Yeah, I think he's about there. It's down. The velo is down. It's not like when he came up and, and sort of blew the doors off everything, the velo was up and then he transitioned to a relief role and that kept his velo and stuff plus numbers up despite I mean, because of the role change more than anything. So I think that was covering up the fact that maybe he can't really sustain that velo as a starter. But the numbers so far this year suggest that he has an average fastball, an above average slider, and two secondaries that he can make work in the curve and change. I think that's a four-pitch mix with a great home park, and I think that is probably worth bidding fairly aggressively for because it's across the board better than the numbers for David Peterson in the model at least. And in the past, he's beaten David Peterson in the Stuff Plus model as well. So I, I think McGill is the guy who's likely to stay. Now, Carlos Carrasco looked uh, pretty terrible. He looks really bad in the, in, in the model with a 70 Stuff Plus on the fastball, which is the number that comes online the fastest. There could be something going on with Carlos Carrasco that opens it up for both of them. However, I think uh, being fairly aggressive on McGill makes sense. Yeah. I don't know if I'd go that far because... I do have noticed that when I looked at my uh, pitching on the wire, it still actually looks somewhat interesting to me. And in my main, we got outbid on a whole pitcher chain just because we saw them as all kind of uh, similar. This Um, happens. And so uh, I don't remember who we lost out on. I can probably uh, figure that out really quickly. But uh, uh, Miguel wasn't available. For us, and so these are names that aren't maybe as relevant. It seemed like a lot of leagues. It was Chris Bubich, uh, Bryce Elder, yes. Braxton Garrett, who's back in the rotation for the Marlins. Those three were pretty frequently added because they were widely available, and and because of matchups and you know, two start weeks and different things that pulled people in. Saw some Matt Strom bids. Those were relatively small by comparison. Uh, but Bubich has been a, kind of an interesting person to talk about because he's changed him his arsenal again. Added a slider. He's picked up Velo. I know the pitching models actually like those changes quite a bit. And I was watching him a little bit yesterday against the Giants. And when I watch Bubich, you know, I try to like set a reasonable expectation when someone pops in the model who was previously really bad because you don't want to say everything looks better. He's a sub three ERA guy because the guys around him and stuff are that good. It's like, no, it doesn't doesn't quite work like that. It's improvement. Is it enough improvement to where, especially in 15-team leagues, you're going to use someone like Bubich for these next couple of weeks in most matchups? Because these, these are the decisions you have to make. Like, it's, it's not just picking up someone because they're interesting. It's That's picking it. them up and using them, and he's home against Atlanta this week. So if you picked up Chris Bubich and you paid 5 7 10% of your budget, whatever it ended up being, you're probably inclined to go ahead and fire him out there in your lineup right away. So I'm just curious what you make of these adjustments and and how much you trust him with that matchup. And he's got a road stop against the Angels 
for his start next week, too. Those are two reasonably tough spots for him that are a good test for fantasy managers, too. Yeah, I mean, we're we're watching him pitch in San Francisco uh, against a team that uh, is up and down offensively. <laughs> it's fair to say that they're kind of really erratic right now. I don't uh, I don't know exactly what it is, but they're they're missing against some lineups of some pitchers and then and and thundering against others in San Francisco right now. But Bubich in his second start, which is not in the Fangraphs numbers right now, I, I as we record, I really apologize for that. So there's been a little, few hiccups as we've been rolling this out, and I don't know where exactly those are, but we are going to figure it out. The second start, the Sunday start uh, for Bubich, his fastball went from 112 stuff plus to 86. That's the kind of uh, pitch there that's most important in small samples and, and most um, meaningful in stuff plus in small samples, and uh, he went longer. He had to throw more four seamers. The first outing, I believe, was four innings. So there is a chance that those first numbers were inflated by being a shorter outing. Um, his slider is good in the model. The curveball is not as good. And the changeup, I'm going to throw an IDK on. Uh, it was a 72 in the first start and a 92 in the second. Changeups are just more erratic in the model. I'm going to say maybe give him an average changeup, a plus slider, and an average four seam. I don't think this is very meaningfully different from other Kansas City Royal starters that have had similar uh, profiles. So for me, Bubich is a guy who's very schedule dependent. I am not uh, ready to put him in my top 50. And so he was in a grouping uh, that I, I lost out on him, but in the grouping were Braxton Garrett, and Wade Miley, and I preferred Garrett and Miley to him. Um, Garrett has more pitches and, and similar stuff, and I think better command. Uh, Miley uh, is kind of a two-pitch guy, but I think maybe three in slider cutter change. And uh, he's, I don't like his home park as much, but he's an established guy uh, who looks like he's pitching fine. So uh, I think I have Garrett and Miley above Bubich. I guess maybe Bubich has a better home park than Miley. So maybe Garrett, Bubich, Miley would be my uh, ranking. And all those guys are in the 70s, 80s. Is that sort of how to describe how you feel about it? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the the ceiling, if everything goes right, and that's just like a full season of health, the pitch is working. Hitters not making adjustments to like make those pitches less effective. It's probably that of a guy that would go in the pick 150 to 200 range. It's like an SP5, right? If you think back to draft season. So I think it's, for me, I, I like to think back to how, how I valued players when we were building teams and then just compare the guys we're seeing. Like How, how different is this guy than the guys I was taking at this part of the draft? And I think mm -hmm. we want guys that are available in fab in the early weeks of the season to be super valuable because we want to think we're making our teams a lot better. We're, we're taking these steps to make our team win a title. And sometimes we are. Other times we're just shuffling deck chairs, right? Other times we're just, <laughs> we're just like, it's, it's another, it's like it's the guy we could have drafted, we could have drafted Bubich at, at round 28, round 29, round 30. We drafted somebody else instead. And they're basically the same guy and they're both schedule dependent and they both have below average skills. I'm not saying to dismiss these fast starts either, but what I'm saying is I think sometimes we just lose sight. Like we do all that research for months and months and months. And then we get to the first, second, third fab and <laughs> we start cutting in. guys and we start picking guys up and we're like, it, it's, it's almost like we have like two or three beers and we're, we're our judgment's starting <laughs> to get a little bit cloudy. And it's like, Oh, whoa, 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 just hold on. Like just take a breath and just make sure that you're actually making a move. That's good. Not to cut someone who's hurt, or someone who's been just truly awful, that's fine. That's easy to do. But I just think if Bubich, the most likely outcome, even with the changes, is probably a top 75 to top 100 starter. Usable, matchup dependent. But you probably cut a matchup dependent starter who's in that same cluster for him if you didn't have an easy drop for him. I guess that's the bigger point that I'm trying to make. And I'll phrase it a different way. What's the difference between Chris Bubich and and Jeffrey Springs, because I think some people would say, well, look at Jeffrey Springs. He wasn't good before last season. He came out of nowhere, and he shoved great ratios and struck plenty of guys out, 
and was a good value kind of in that pick 150 range who then had the late bump this draft season. Why can't Bubich be like that? Is is he like that or is he, uh, I think I think this was a, a Jeff Zimmerman tweet. Did he make enough adjustments with the velo and the new pitches where he's kind of a clean slate where it's like the Kyle Wright thing last year? Because I thought Wright this time last year was one of the easier, this guy is different sort of pickups that I've seen in a few years. I thought it was a, a pretty clear like, this is worth taking the gamble on. Enough has changed, and the team is good. So there are lots of ways for it to go right. Bubish doesn't necessarily have that, and the team is good. So that might hold him back a little bit too, value-wise, if these skills are only taking a small step forward instead of a massive step forward. No, it's a good point. I mean, we have these models to react fast. I do think that probably the best place that I'd be looking is Brady Singer last year. And uh, Bray Singer last year popped and was the 42nd best uh, starting pitcher. And I think in a lot of ways has a similar situation in terms of his pitches. I mean, he's a guy with a great, uh, he's in his case, sinker, slider, and a change up to perform better than the model set. And I think that's what we have with Chris Bubich right now. So if you want to believe, I don't, I'm not going to stand in your way. Um, <laughs> it, it's uh, it, what I see there, though, in the in the fastball taking a step down in the second start of the season when he has to go deeper. Uh, that that worries me a little bit um, because he's basically a fastball slider guy in this model, whereas Jeffrey Springs was a guy who had multiple pitches. Now I think there's just a lot less pressure on you uh, on your pitches. Think of Spencer Strider. He's the guy who has top two top 10 pitches. So what his changeup does matters less, right? Every step you take down the ugly tree, every branch you hit down the ugly tree on each of your pitches puts more pressure on you to have more pitches, right? Tyler Anderson doesn't have any top 10 pitches. And so he has to have like six pitches. <laughs> um, so in any case, uh, when I look at uh, at Springs, I see a, a wider arsenal that I believe in. Uh, when I look at uh, Bubich, I kind of see a fastball slider guy. Okay, that's a good explanation, and I think a, a fair way to look at it. Yeah, it's just a, it's a crazy time of year for for all of these reasons. And the other the other guy that was a popular pickup, I think it was because it was a two start week, is Bryce Elder. Now that's one I've never seen it from a skills perspective from Bryce Elder, yeah. but I, I value two start weeks, and then we got a question about why two start weeks are so valuable, and and how exactly you balance, you know, skills versus the matchups versus you know all these other factors we're trying to take into consideration. It's a good, it's a really good question. Uh, so let's just take the broader part of this first, because you mentioned Wade Miley being someone that you picked up this week. I've got him in a couple places. Not that I think the skills are good. He doesn't miss that many bats. I just two starts from Wade Miley. I mean, you're you're likely very likely going to get one victory. You're very likely going to get eight or nine strikeouts, and you're hopefully going to get ratios that actually help you more than they hurt you. But most most likely, you're going to get ratios that are kind of neutral. So you just get more volume from someone like Miley than you get from someone like Bubich, who has a tough matchup and goes to Atlanta. Like that's or plays Atlanta at home. Like that's that's the sort of decision people might have to actually be making this week. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is that the deeper you go, like I think if you make an argument about most leagues, 12 to 15 team leagues, you can uh you can easily say that two start uh pitcher is better uh, even at the extremes. So I found a, a story here by uh, Paul Mamino on uh, fan tracks from 2020. We actually did the the research where he he grouped pitchers into elite, above average, average, below average, and poor based on their seasonal ERA. That's a little bit problematic. I would rather have used projected ERA, uh, but it it does give you a sense of the groupings. And he said that two starters uh, for every group other than poor outperformed one starters that were even elite. So even a below average pitcher, and this is someone who has a seasonal ERA between 4.25 and 4.75 for him, uh, even a below average two-start pitcher outperformed a one-start elite pitcher. Now, 
I think that's true. And so there's a lot of leagues where, you know, weekly leagues where especially 12, you just want to get those groupings. What I will say is that if you extend this out to like the most extreme, say uh, the most extreme is probably like a 12 team AL only 12 team NL only. Every pitcher on the wire is poor. I mean, there's like there, there's like every once in a while you you pop and you're like, oh, I got this guy off the wire. Congratulations, you got the one, you know. And so there's no way in an NL or AL only league you should be you should be out there churning starters off the wire. It'll go very poorly for you. And what I found in my 15 team uh, NFC main NFBC main was that by at least by midseason. That's what I was looking at. I was looking at the poor grouping. And so what I've tried to do this year is, yes, on my team, I will give preference to two starters over one starters. And so when I'm setting my lineup, I will care about two starts. But when I'm picking pitchers up, I want them to have the chance to stick on my team. I want them to have the chance to stick further. So Bryce Elder, it may be a blind blind spot. I know that there are other people out there that put massive bids down for Bryce Elder. Or not massive, but like, you know, I saw one analyst, uh, you know, putting $50 bids down on Bryce Elder. And um, I saw him as more of a sort of $6 to $9 streaming guy. And I had Braxton Garrett at 11 because I just thought, it's more likely that I want to keep Braxton Garrett on my team all year. Um, and so that's how I sorted my way through it. And I, on, and TGFBI ended up with, with Wade Miley with the same sort of um, approach. Yeah, if you look at the, the rotation right now for Atlanta with Freed and Wright down, those guys come back. They're obviously going to have their spots. Strider and Morton have spots. And then you've got, until Mike Soroka's ready, the fifth starter spot left. So you don't have that long window. I mean, Elder could take that job. I think he's better than Dodd and Schuster, but I also think Soroka is better than Elder. I mean, he none of the stuff plus numbers favor any of his pitches, Elders, uh, last year or this year. In fact, all below average. So, yeah. Uh, but I, I think this is always just one of these topics that, that comes up because when you look at Fab most weeks, some of the well, that guy went for that much pitchers. Usually, it's because they've got two starts or if it's guys that you didn't trust at all and they got picked up oh no they got two starts this week and both of them happen to be good uh, Miley you know the, the K rate like we mentioned before a tad on the low side I still I wouldn't worry about that I think part of this too comes back to usage I think if he is struggling he doesn't go through the lineup a third time if he's pitching well he gets that opportunity it's sort of like the way the Rays manage a lot of their, their back end sort of starters that's the way the Brewers previously used Wade Miley when he was there five years ago. I think that's the same situation that we have in front of us uh, right here. I had uh, some missed uh, uh, bids uh, that didn't go through on Dean Kramer. I think he had a two-start week coming. Um, Brad Keller has uh, popped somewhat in the stuff model. He's added a, uh, a sweeper. So now he has, I believe, two sliders. Let me... Anyway, yeah, I think Bryce Elder has two. Uh, uh, Brad Keller has two sliders going. He has a good matchup this week, doesn't he? Keller is at Texas. Yeah, I think that's an okay matchup, but um, I, it's hard to believe in him fully, and it's hard to believe in him fully. Not so much because of the new uh, Arsenal, which uh, in his last start he had an above-average four-seam by Stuff Plus, an above-average curveball. Um, and then a really plus slider and sweeper. So I do think with, you know, three breaking balls and a fastball like that, he can be successful this year. It's just so hard to bet on him when the whips on his in his past have been so high. And you just I know his locations have been good so far, but that doesn't that doesn't mean that uh they're going to continue to be right. I mean, it's he's a guy who's had struggled with command. His his arsenal is better. In fact, to me, when I look at Brad Keller's revamped arsenal, I like it better than Booch's. Interesting. It's more complete. But with Keller out there, I'm not going to invest that hard in Boobich because 
I feel like Keller's still out there. <laughs> I can just get him next week, especially if he shoves against Texas. Although I wonder if his price will go up then. But um, yeah, that's. Uh, I think. I think we mostly. I mean, Sears uh, looks a little bit interesting, um, and you know, he's. I think he's at least interesting as a Oakland JP Sears is interesting as an Oakland pitcher. Uh, that's a nice place to pitch. Yeah. So this week, JP Sears has the Orioles on the road. That's a Monday start. And then he ended up with, I believe, the Mets on Sunday, but he does get them at home. They start an A other than Kyle Muller, an A's pitcher at this point. I think that's really difficult to do. I was watching some of the Ken Waldachuk start against the Rays. Painful. Uh, and there was a sequence, too, where he had a couple of, of good, uh, good plate appearances in trouble. The bases were loaded. Yeah, it was right before the Grand Slam. And he struck out Yanni Diaz and, and Wander, and he was doing a good job elevating his fastball. I was like, all right, this is this is a young guy. Maybe he's he's going to get through this, and this is going to be the the moment where the light bulb goes on for Ken Waldachuk. And uh, no, it, it was not that moment. This is a disaster. Sears, I guess I'm curious, what in his arsenal makes you willing to trust him? Or is it just purely a ballpark play where it's like, the command's good enough, he'll avoid damaging contact and if he's pitching at home in the damp basement it's just going to work because it's good enough you'll get volume in a super friendly pitcher environment he's always had good secondaries and he still does and what makes me a little bit interested in him is that he had 97 stuff plus on 52 fastballs in his first start and that would be the highest stuff plus he's ever had on his fastballs in the model so it's, he didn't throw a lot of pitches, but he threw, I mean, actually he did. He threw 90, what is it? 80, 90, 96 pitches, 98 pitches. Yeah, yeah 98, man. didn't get through five, but he threw 98 pitches. <laughs> well, yes, the location plus on some of those pitches was not good, but uh, uh, that's not, that's not as meaningful in, in short terms. Uh, Waldachuk's stuff plus is, is actually super erratic from start to start. So I don't know what's going on there. Uh, maybe he's feeling his way through some sort of arsenal change. Uh, but I I think there's, you know, in a keeper league, I'd, I'd hold on to him on my bench if I could. Um, I might even uh, consider acquiring. But Sears is a is a good pickup in deep leagues, I think. You know, he's uh, he's got a good reputation for a strike thrower with good secondaries. And if his fastball is going to be 97 stuff plus, that's going to change things for him. That's That's pretty good for a starter, especially a lefty. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Curious, how does Sears' arsenal compare to Nestor Cortez in the model? Just because, same organization originally, at least for a long time. I think Sears actually spent time in a different org before that. Yeah, anyway, it doesn't matter. The bigger point is J.P. Sears is lefty. He doesn't throw real hard, but does have good enough secondaries. And the results in the minors have been good at a lot of different stops. If you look at 
if you just look at the ERA and, and whip numbers and the K to BBs from Sears, he'd, he's a pitcher you'd be interested in just number scouting him. Yeah. And I think he's actually very com- comparable to Cortez. Um, what was happening with Cortez, though, is that he was getting that fastball bump that Sears is getting now. And I think probably the Yankees saw Cortez is adding Velo and Sears maybe wasn't or was stagnant or whatever it was. Um, and they thought he was. Plus, if you think back to when the trade was happening, Cortez was shoving, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was. In the major leagues. Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit like, well, these guys are comparable and we want Frankie Montas. So this is what's going to cost us. Oh, look at those Sears numbers in the minors. Some of them are really good. That's a, Yeah, it's you can't be that good in the minors and be horrible in the majors, can you? Can you, can you really like have seasons and partial seasons where you're a sub-3 ERA and a sub-1 whip and then you show up in the big leagues and you're a 450-130 guy? That doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think he was interesting. And then uh, one, one other guy to keep an eye on, he's a sort of transitioning from, uh, from relieving to starting. Is Matt Strom in uh, Philadelphia. You know, when you go from a, a one-inning start to a four-inning start, you kind of want to track the changes in the fastball, just like I was saying with Bubich. And so, yes, in his second start, the fastball didn't rate as well. However, we threw 31 of them, and it still was 106. So could he pull a Lugo, you know, where he's going to just start this year and – I think the Phillies could use him. I think he could bypass Bailey Falter. Uh, and uh, I think at least the, the four-seam fastball, uh, the curve, and the slider, I think, are probably all uh, really good pitches. So um, I think he has enough of an arsenal to, to make it work, too. Yeah, uh, that's that's a pretty interesting one, too. Um, I'm with you. I, I think Seth Lugo just came out of nowhere to be a part of that Padres rotation again. I didn't... I'm not even, I mean, I was a little preoccupied the last six weeks before opening day, but I didn't realize he was even in the mix for a spot like that. That was one of those things that flew completely under my radar. He's part of the reason why I bold predicted the Padres to have the best rotational ERA in baseball, just because I saw in the Padres the best depth that they've maybe ever had, or like, I mean, these in this recent, recent grouping. I mean, you go from... Uh, throwing it all on on young weathers who'd never really played in the who debuted with that team that collapsed and you go from that to back in now having michael waka seth lugo nick martinez jay groom weathers morahan and they even signed cole hamill so you know that i think that's a, a better collection of arms uh, that they've had behind their big three and uh you know the padres might be the best team in the nl right now off to a really good start. Had a great series against Atlanta. We saw that on Sunday Night Baseball uh, as well. And I, I like I like a lot of things about what they've been doing, of course. They've been pushing all their chips in. I've talked to Keith Law on the Athletic Baseball Show, too. Like They have done a good job getting a few prospects into that system again. Like Jackson Merrill looks like a great pick for them as a first-rounder. The Salas Ethan Salas too, signing. Right? Yeah. yeah. The Ethan Salas thing. I know, you know, we've got our own prospect show now during the week, and Ethan Salas is going to come up a lot on Tuesdays, but I can't remember a 16-year-old a 16-year-old catcher being anywhere near big leaguers in spring training and and catching them on you know rehab and different that that's unbelievable. Like that is such a crazy high ceiling. And I know you are are very cautious about catchers in general and keeper in dynasty leagues and expecting too much too fast from them, but this looks as much like a ultra mega ceiling player as we see at the position. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't have to point very far for caution onto his own team. And Luis Camposano uh, was, you know, thought of by a lot, a lot of people to be uh, the next mega star at the catcher and, and, you know, has struggled his way through the first few years and some question about, you know, handing him the reins as as a catcher for, you know, in terms of what he has to do other than hitting. Uh, because he 
you know, hasn't even done the hitting that he's needed to do, but there's, it's 104 plate appearance. You could say there's a lot, there's a lot more in that bat, but I think there's been some question about handling it. So I guess it, it is really interesting that he, you know, that they're willing to let him handle, you know, tough situations as a catcher and that they speak so highly of him as a catcher. Cause I think that's actually more relevant a lot of times than what they're going to do offensively. Like, Dalton Varsho, some questions about him as a catcher. Well, he was such a good hitter, he hit his way through that. That's rarer. I think Alejandro Kirk has hit his way into a starting catcher role. Um, but there's a lot of other catchers who had good numbers in the minors, some questions about whether they catch, and then they just end up kind of middling there. Look at Eric Haas as someone who kind of belongs in that grouping, I think. I was thinking about uh, Will Smith too, and just the the path he took to be the player he is. Like I, I don't know if expectations were nearly as high as they should have been based on the outcome. But when you go back to the, the beginning of his career, low A, high A, the numbers were not bad, but they didn't jump off the page at that point. And he was uh, he was a first round pick who was a college guy, so it wasn't like it wasn't like he needed the extra development time that a, a high school catching prospect would need too. That's where I think the extra layer of yeah. risk really comes in. Remember when they sat him for Austin Hedges in the playoffs? Oh, Barnes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That Austin was, Barnes, yeah. yeah. That was whoo, had that that didn't make a lot of sense then and it's impossible to believe now. It made less sense, but but it it has to do with with catching and you know, there was that remember there was the whole thing with Doug Mirabelli and and was it R.A. Dickey or Tim Wakefield? Doug Mirabelli and Tick Wake, Tim Wakefield were like they traded away Tim. Uh, they traded away Doug Mirabelli, uh, and then figured out that nobody else could catch Tim Wakefield, so they had to trade back for <laughs> Doug Mirabelli. <laughs> Famous taxi ride, right? That was him. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, just get come back, come back. <laughs> so, I mean, I I think Salas is someone to get excited about. I'm not, I'm not trying to talk down on, on him too much, but like you know, catchers are tough. It's a it's a really really tough role. And for what it's worth, I don't think automated balls and strikes are coming. I think that's going to be a uh, more of a challenge system. That's what the players like better. And so framing still matters. Game calling still matters. Handling your pitcher still matters. That stuff is tough to learn really quickly. Yeah, I, the more I think about the balls and strikes thing, I I love the challenge idea because it'd be so quick. It'd be just like tennis. You know, you, you don't like the call. You signal. They pop it up on the board real quick. You see it in real time. It's, it's like a kind of like the VAR responses to when for offsides and goals when you watch soccer and tennis. Tennis. Tennis does so well that. with it. I just think it's it's going to be so quick, so instantaneous. It's not going to be like the reviews they currently do in baseball. It's not going to be. It's like, more fun, you know. Like when they do the tennis ones, like I, I, if I'm not mistaken, like they kind of the 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 the, the crowd's like whoa, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The crowd gets into it, and, and tennis crowds are you know kind of chill most of the time. Yeah, right. right. So, chill most of the time, but then sometimes the most noise they make is on the is the ball. Where's the where's the yellow gonna? Oh, <laughs> so yeah, I think they can make it work. You know, I I, I did want to uh, call out uh, some interesting hitters that were on the wire this week too. Um, I I won Alex Call in TGFBI and I and I and in my main. Um, one of the reasons I like him is that he has elite uh, plate discipline. Uh, Alex Call is now starting, I think, most days. I've been trying to watch the box scores and see if they're going to sit him against um, anybody, but he's a righty. So when he's starting a lot, I think he could be an everyday starter in that outfield with really good plate discipline, really kind of poor max EV so far, but that's not something you want to hold against someone in the short term necessarily. And I think he's just going to be a guy who gets to a lower raw power more often. And that's not a sexy uh, situation, but you see even in the fan graphs, uh, prospect grades, 50 raw power, 40, 50 game power, uh, 40, 45 hit. It's not an exciting package, but I think it's going to end up being above average across the board and paired with near elite plate discipline. I think it's a type of player that honestly the Nationals don't have and that they need. If you're going to play Luis Garcia, who swings at everything, maybe have Alex Call on base in front of him. You know what I mean? So uh, Alex Call is a guy I picked up everywhere that I could. 
Um, and I think, I think especially in deeper leagues, he's playing all the time and deserves, deserves mention. Another guy that I'm keeping my eye on and I didn't win is Luke Rayleigh in, uh, in Tampa, another deep league guy, but, uh, he's a lefty. He's playing, he's slugging, slugged in the minors. He may strike out more than he's striking out right now, and that might be the part of his line that is hot. You know, he he, he may only be like a two twenty hitter, uh, but um, I think he could hit for power and get on base. Yeah, when we've seen him in the big leagues, it's been parts of three different seasons now, so it's only sixty two games, a lot of pinch hitting opportunities for him, but a fifteen point two percent barrel rate. That is really good, and it's not out of step with the power that he's shown in the upper levels of the minor leagues. Uh, I actually think you know, seeing some of the fluctuations in his K rate, because I expect the Rays to make him firmly part of their mix-and-match platoon club, he's probably going to keep the K rate on the lower end of his range. If they let him play more, that's when I think it would start to balloon up. He won't face lefties. Right, and... so I'd probably take the under on a 30% K rate, which is where all the projection systems are, but you're getting less playing time. Plus every day, well, not every day playing time, but more robust playing time, which he's already he's already there. More robust playing time should lead to better reach rates and uh, and swing rates and just you know better strikeout rates, better plate to, plate skills because you're just playing more, you're seeing more, you're you're in there more often. It's it's hard, I think, when you you're called up for seventy two plate appearances spread over a season uh, to really establish your your approach at the plate, you know? It's funny that you picked up Alex Call, though, because he, I actually got him in TF, TGFBI as well. I, I just, I saw good balanced skills. I wanted someone who's going to play every day. I think that's one of the big things that separates it, kind of bringing it back to the part of our conversation from earlier. If you're looking for something that's different about a player you're picking up now versus someone you either drafted or could pick up on, on the wire who has good skills, the playing time separator could be the thing that makes them more sticky on the roster. The big side platoon guys are on and off the roster a lot of times. So you know, Luke Rayleigh and Gavin Sheets, you have to really look at the schedule for those guys in weekly leagues before you pick them up just to make sure you're going to get enough for them from the week for the week. Whereas someone like Call, if you see he's getting starts against righties and lefties, that might nudge a guy with slightly lesser skills ahead of guys with more interesting skills for me. Like I, I know it's a, it's a, it's a dangerous game to play in some regard, but you're you're trying to analyze how teams are going to use their players because ultimately those extra counting stats could make the difference. And that extra playing time will make someone like Call more valuable if we are, in fact, right about the limitations of guys like Rayleigh and Gavin Sheets being capped to that big side platoon. There's some, there's some interesting things going on in what you're talking about. Um, I, I think about... Little League uh, and and my kids and how f- rarely they see a lefty pitcher <laughs> and I and I think that's I think that's true generally until you get to maybe college you know start to see some lefties but even then I think the population of lefties really doesn't uh, come online until the uh, the minor leagues and so if you're talking about a righty hitter you know they've seen they had the platoon advantage against lefties and they've seen righties their whole life now a lefty could make it through the minors, it could make it through high school, little league, all that stuff, and not see that many lefties. And then start to see tough lefties in the minors and then try to be try to do something about it. So there's just a, a difference in if you're talking about the 10,000 swings or 10,000 whatever is like just a difference in volume. So and then yeah, I think also just in terms of fancy playing, like if you had five games out of a lefty last week and you got five games out of a righty last week, it's much more likely that that five-game righty is a full-time player. I mean, Ref Snyder is about to hit like three lefties this week, and so he's going to stretch my definition. But well, <laughs> yeah, I I think that's one of the mistakes people can make in early season fab, though, is not breaking down the why part of of someone's playing time on a micro yeah. sort of level. We had a Mike Curlin on last week, and I feel like Mike has to get to the end of the season and just be absolutely exhausted from digging through the box scores and the baseball reference pages, but the the baseball reference batting orders page is probably my favorite visual presentation of what teams like to do. I think there's other tools out there that do this. Um, 
bookmark one if you find it and then just change the team part of the URL if you uh, <laughs> if you don't want to get lost trying to find it a second time. But you can see pretty easily who the priority plays have been for the Nats so far this season. They have played 10 games. Jamer Candelario has started all 10 games. Victor Robles has started all 10 games. Lane Thomas. Oh, no. He, yeah, he, you know, know. he showed up on some of my on some of my pickup lists. I know he was on a team I co-managed, and I didn't push the buttons. I I didn't I didn't reject it, <laughs> but I didn't push the buttons. I didn't make it happen. He's playing and he's stealing bases, so he's irrelevant. But you can get a sense for Candelario, Robles, Thomas. They've been priority plays. C.J. Abrams priority play for them. Nine of the ten games started so far. Uh, Dominic Smith, Kiebert Ruiz. Oh, Joey Manessis also has nine. Kiebert and Dominic Smith and Alex Call all have eight games played. That's a pretty clear hierarchy of who's in right now. So beyond that, everybody else is six or fewer starts. And that includes Luis Garcia, who I thought would be a little more of a priority play for them early on. Corey Dickerson, one. Michael Chavis, yeah, three. Riley Adams, might two. might be part of the Luis Garcia thing. I wonder about that. But. Yeah. So anyway, I, I, just, I, I think you can tell a lot ab- about what teams are, are trying to do with their playing time. Once you have a few series in, I think it was really hard to do coming out of the first series, second series, you get to three, four series, you get enough mixing and matching its righties and lefties that you could pick up on the tendencies just a little bit more and start to try and figure out if there are some advantages to be had. Sure, for sure. Do you pick up Francisco Alvarez anywhere, even though he's not catcher eligible and may take a surprising amount of time to get there? No, I did not. It's pretty big bids in a lot of places. And it's understandable. I mean, I think the range of outcomes is it's very wide for Francisco Alvarez. He's a fantastic hitter. He makes very hard contact. There are questions about his defense. Omar Narvaez is on the IL right now. Tomas Nito is a phenomenal defensive catcher, but he's just a clear backup. And then you have to decide if you're going to sit one of your other regular hitters to prioritize Alvarez. So I looked at it and I think I think if he hits he can stay. I really do. I don't think this is 100% a Narvaez comes back and he goes back down. I think it's if he hits enough and he's showing the Mets enough in his opportunities behind the plate where they're comfortable catching him on occasion, then that's fine. And then maybe he can even move up in this lineup just a little bit and end up hitting something like fifth or sixth by season's end. I think that's in the range of outcomes, even though a return trip to AAA is also in the reasonable range of outcomes for Alvarez right now. Yeah, I just see this as sort of the the stop start beginning of a catcher's career and i also i don't know for what it's worth had a prospect i had a a a scout in my ear about him having a very obvious hole in the swing Hmm. so i know that when he's come up his his swing strike rates have have ballooned and it's yes it's 18 plate appearances we'll have to see on that but he also is the kind of guy who has very high swing strike rates for his strikeout rates in the minors I mean, he had a 19% at AAA this year, 15, 16% the last couple times at AA and AAA. Those are those are pretty high. So young for the level everywhere he's been, though. 27 home runs between AA and AAA, and that was only 112 games last year for Francisco Alvarez. Draws enough walks, I think, to offset some of the K concerns. Has that good real-life offensive player base very solidly baked in. I'm curious to see if that hole that you were told about, though, if that ends up being a problem for him, because if, if that's there, in addition to some questions about the defense, that does lead to more of that up and down sort of role. But I've I've pinpointed it. I think if they were going to keep Alvarez on the roster once Nervias comes back to have a third catcher slash DH type, Tim LaCastro is the guy that has to come off the roster. And I think it's possible because Tim LaCastro has only started two games out of the first 10. He is your spare outfielder. He's mm-hmm. the guy you'd like to have available to play center field and maybe steal a base late in the game, but you don't need to have that guy. You can get so much more out of Alvarez's bat by comparison that that makes sense. They've played Tommy Pham in center against the couple of lefties too, so they got another guy that can play center if they need it. I don't know if they would play Canna or, or Marte. Marte would probably also play out there if they had a pinch, so I don't think they have to keep Tim LeCastro is what I'm saying. So the, the barrier of who would have to go low in this case. That's why I think so much is up to Alvarez's performance. Yeah, I wonder if center field is the least important up the middle defensive position now that we've changed the shift rules. That's a, I think it used to be second base because you could you know, move them around, you could shift, you could put two guys over there. But I think that's changed. I think you want a good defender at second. 
The Mets right now seem to be trying out one of the poorer defensive alignments in center, and it, I don't think it's hurting them. No. Doesn't seem like it's hurting them so far. That's going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. On our way out the door, we still have a special offer. It's a dollar a month for the first year at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. Get that while you can. If you don't have that subscription, this is a great time to get it. You'll have all the coverage throughout the season, both fantasy baseball, real baseball. If you're into other sports, of course, we're covering those as well. You can find Eno on Twitter at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. We are back with you with Project Prospect on Tuesday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>